This is episode 109 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Prepping for Short-Term Power Outages and the Top 10 Biggest Prepper Debates. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, only two articles for today because uh, there are they are uh, kind of long, and uh, so don't want to you know go way over. Uh, plus, I've had some long nights, and I just uh, I do need to go to bed early. I don't want to wear my body down so much that I start to get sick. I uh, can't afford to do that. Uh, but these are a little bit longer articles, and I do want to uh, be able to uh, comment on them a little bit. So. The first one comes to us from the survivalistblog.net, MD Creekmore's uh, uh, website over there. And uh, it's again, it's entitled Preparing for Short-Term Power Outages. So let's go ahead and read this one. Survival seems to be the current hot topic. Everywhere you look, self-proclaimed experts are willing to tell you all you need to survive the upcoming apocalypse of whatever scenario they can imagine. Most of their tips are tied to more and better equipment. I do think that it is important to prepare for the future, but knowing what to prepare for and how to start are always tricky. I am no fortune teller, just an old country boy who has been around several blocks in my day. I grew up in an area often hit by hurricanes and lived through one of the most active periods on record. While serving in the U.S. Army, I lived in the Northeast through several winters. I have slept out in the tent in 10 degree weather, in tents in 110 degree weather, sandstorms, lightning storms, and some disasters of a man-made nature. I grew up in a rural area as the son of parents who lived through the Great Depression. As such, we already lived to maximize the things that we had, but whenever a storm approached, we had certain things that we had to do in case of power loss. Hopefully, you will find this plan an easy way to prepare. Most survival guides try to talk talk you through surviving major apocalyptic events from financial system meltdown to electromagnetic pulse. This guide will attempt to help you make a plan for any disaster you may face. The most common scenario most of us will face is a three-day local power disruption. Whenever there is an indication that something could disrupt power, don't just run out to buy milk and bread. There are several things that you can do at home to help you prepare and make your life better. I tend to use hurricane as a general cause of short-term power outages, but this can be adapted to any anticipated event of short-term duration. Secure an adequate water supply. You will need a gallon of water per person per day. This is as as easy as buying a case of water per person sheltering with you. This is drinking water only for people who are not performing manual labor. Persons performing manual labor will need one to two quarts of water per hour in the heat and one quart per hour in the cold. This is just water for drinking only. It does not take into account water for cooking or personal hygiene. Fill your bathtub with water. This water will be used to flush the toilet. Conserve water by flushing only when necessary. Remember, yellow, let it mellow, brown, flush it down. Toilets in America are flushed by siphon. The gooseneck in the toilet keeps gas and odor from coming into the house. Pouring water into the toilet bowl raises the level of the water above the gooseneck and will cause a siphon action to drain the bowl. You can understand how the siphon works by trying two experiments with your toilet. First, take a cup of water and pour it into the bowl. You will find that almost nothing happens. 
what's even more interesting is that you can pour multiple cups of water into a toilet bowl one at a time and still nothing will happen. That is, no matter how many cups of water you pour in, the level of the water in the bowl never rises. When you pour the cup of water in, the water level in the bowl rises, but the extra water immediately spills over the edge of the siphon tube and drains away. Now take a bucket of water and pour it into the bowl. You will find that pouring in a certain amount of water at the precise speed causes the bowl to flush. That is, almost all of the water is sucked out of the bowl and the bowl makes the recognizable flush sound and all of the water goes down the pipe. What's happened is this. You've poured enough water into the bowl fast enough to fill the siphon tube and once the tube was filled, the rest was automatic. The siphon sucked the water out of the bowl and down the pipe. As soon as the bowl emptied, air entered the siphon tube, producing that distinctive flushing sound and stopping the siphon action. You can see that even with water service cut off, you can still flush your toilet. All you need is a bucket containing a couple of gallons of water. It is not an exact science and you should practice prior to any event so that you can do it with a minimum of water and maximum of achievement. Use care because spill from the toilet onto the floor will waste more water for a necessary cleanup. Father Fenton, our priest in Afghanistan, lived through Hurricane Katrina just north of Biloxi, Mississippi, and told us how several retired priests moved in with him because his house was still habitable. As luck would have it, his small inflatable pool survived and was available to furnish water for toilet flushing. He said that his home suffered more water damage from errant flushing than from the storm. As and yes, you could simply remove the cover of the tank and pour the water into the tank so that you can use the toilet like normal. There are two reasons I recommend not doing that. First, the cover of your toilet is fragile and can be broken very easily. And second, water conservation. Everyone's instinct will be to automatically flush when finished. Worse than a slop over from an overenthusiastic flush will be a drain clog. Paper products should not be put in the toilet, but into a plastic garbage bag for disposal. Hand cleansing should be accomplished with hand sanitizer. Fill plastic bottles with tap water and cram them into your freezer. The more full your freezer is, the longer it will stay cold. Block ice will also last longer than cubed ice in an ice chest. A standalone freezer will keep food froze, frozen up to three days if you leave the door closed. A freezer compartment above your refrigerator will not last that long. Avoid opening the door as long as you can. After thawing, these bottles of water will be available for drinking. Gather your food supplies. Once a hurricane warning has been issued, it's time to prepare your food. Any food items in your refrigerator needing cooking should be cooked now and returned to the refrigerator or placed in an ice chest. Boil your eggs, bake your potatoes, fry your steak. Leftovers that are in your refrigerator can be placed in an ice chest with ice so that you can keep your refrigerator closed. The ideal food for short duration power outages are foods that take little or no preparation. Peanut butter sandwiches, spam, deviled ham, and other canned items that are tasty, uh, cold straight from the can. And that is how they should be eaten, straight from the can without a plate or bowl. Water conservation is still the key, so avoid dirtying anything that needs washing. Spoons and forks can be licked clean and wiped off and washed later. You could use paper plates and bowls with disposable utensils, but chances are that your garbage service will be off schedule, so try to minimize your water. Providing three meals a day for even short durations will not give you a large variety to choose from when picking foods that can be eaten cold. 
straight from the can, but by adding seasoning and small snacks such as trail mix and cans of fruit, they don't have to be unpleasant. As an alternative, military-style meals, or MREs, have a device that heats the meals by simply adding water to a heater pack. These meals can be expensive, have a shelf life that is limited to a few years, and in my personal opinion, the main meal portion tastes terrible cold. Proper clothing. When you know in advance that a storm event will likely put you out of power, wash all of your dirty underwear. Clothes can be... Clothes can and should be worn more than once in these situations, but for health and well-being, change your underwear daily when possible. The proper clothing for a short-duration power outage will simply be your normal seasonal clothing. Keep in mind that in any season, you may be spending more time outside, so add a season-appropriate hat and sunscreen to your normal wear. Winter or summer, you will need chapstick, blistex, something. See Poo Poo Broussard on YouTube. Make sure that you have good quality rain gear, including boots for all members of the family. There are gloves for all purposes and all-purpose all purpose gloves. My personal choice is leather working gloves for general work, welder's gloves for work around a fire, and good quality wool inserts for my leather gloves for winter work. Shelter is key to survival. In most cases, during power disruptions of short duration, the best choice is to shelter in place. This can be comfortably accomplished in any season with a little planning. If your power out event occurs in the summer, opening all the windows and doors of your home that have screens will get you by in the same comfort our ancestors had. An alternative would be to shut up a screen to set up a screen tent or canopy in the backyard. I also keep several different sprays that kill mosquitoes as well as the deep types that repel them. Winter events can likewise be handled by moving everyone into a single room, sealing it off from all drafts and setting up a tent. Insulate the tent floor with blankets and additional blankets uh, can cover the top and sides of the tent. Good quality sleeping bags and comforters can keep, the war keep you warm to zero degrees. Sharing a sleeping bag or comforter can increase the body heat available to warm the sleeping bag comforter. Do not use open flames in, an, in or near a tent. A good quality lantern oil lamp kept lit while everyone is awake can help warm a small draft-free room, but warm foods high in calories can warm you from the inside. If you do use a lantern oil lamp, be sure to have a battery-powered carbon monoxide detector. The trick to sleeping warm in winter is to use the bathroom prior to climbing in your sleeping bag, eating a small high-calorie snack, and dressing correctly. The correct way to dress for sleeping in a sleeping bag is to strip down to shorts and a t-shirt. Sleeping bags are warmed by body heat. Clothes such as sweats or pajamas trap your body heat close to your body and don't allow your sleeping bag to function as designed. Additional things to help are pick a temperature appropriate bag, wear a knit cap, cover your face with a towel or t-shirt and do not exhale into your sleeping bag. If your feet do not reach the bottom of your sleeping bag, fold the bottom under so you don't heat that portion of the bag. Wear warm socks if you suffer from cold feet. I have a pair of shorts, a t-shirt, and a clean pair of socks that I keep in my bag. I put them on just before getting into my bag at night. Clean clothes and a clean sleeping bag are warmer than dirty ones. A sleeping bag liner can add, a sleeping bag liner can add up to 15 uh, degrees of warmth to your bag. Simply adding a sheet or insulating the bag from the ground can add another 10 degrees. For additional warmth, place a wool blanket or comforter on top of your sleeping bag. Three to five day disruptions of power are not insurmountable. Challenges. With a little planning and almost no skill, anyone can do it. 
plan and prepare so that you can do it with as much comfort as possible. Chapter one of my new book coming out in spring. All right, so um, a lot of good information here. I'm not quite sure why the... Um, I, I know that he's he's using hurricanes as a, a means to uh, talk about all kinds of preparedness. Um, but for instance, you know, we went through Ike here in in, uh, in Houston, and we were without power for three days, and uh, our water our water never went out. So uh, you know, I guess unless your uh, the electricity is bringing water into your home, normally you don't have an issue. Now. What people did have issues with during Ike was, uh, and and we didn't have it in our uh, facility because we're out in the suburbs and we have we're on different water. Um, but uh, I know that Houston uh, City, the parts of it, I think uh, I remember were uh, they were told to uh, to not use the water or to boil. They were on a boil ban, uh, and so you know you have that and that's why it's always important to have you know communications of some sort uh you know because water is coming in and if you're counting on that uh you know again you should always have water storage and blah 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 all the purification filters all that good stuff um that should be automatic but uh yeah for some reason or uh, not I'm sorry not for some reason it's just our our water is on a big water tower in our area and uh, of course, you know, if it was to uh, uh, run empty, then yeah, we would probably have issues. But for the most part, that has never happened, you know, for all the time that we've lived here, uh, even when uh, the lights were out. So again, most water is going to run. Um, now, he talked about filling up your, your bathtub. You can definitely fill up your bathtub. And, uh, you know, you want to make sure that you have a good seal on your on your bathtub on the drain so you might want to uh, fill it up you know just one time you you'll waste a lot of water but uh, fill it up and just let it sit overnight and see if it's going to drain you know sometimes there's the small little drains that you'll just you know eventually start going through and you might think you you have a whole bathtub full and and it runs out if you want to use your bathtub for drinking water I would I would suggest getting a water bob um, they're like twenty nine ninety seven on Amazon. I'll link to it, and uh, you can it fills up uh, inside your your bathtub. So basically, your bathtub is uh, is kind of the um, uh, a, a protection around it. It's a big plastic uh, a big plastic container that has a pump connected to it, and it will hold one hundred gallons of water in there. And so uh, it's a one-time use. So once you use it, you know, you're, you're pretty much done. you got to throw it away or, you know, somehow repurpose the pump or whatever. I'm sure there's creative ways to do that. Uh, but, you know, that's always available there. But uh, I do like the, the idea of uh, remember to, you know, if it's yellow, let, them, yet it, yell it, <laughs> let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down and, uh, you know, save, you know, not, not flushing down anything else along with that. Um, you know, some good advice there. Um, I remember hearing Stephen Harris a long time ago talk about, and we tried this out going up to the country, talked about when you, when you fill up a, an igloo or a, an ice chest, you know, fill it up with big blocks of whatever. So if you, if you um, we have uh, in our, our local food, our grocery store, they sell uh, apple juice or apple cider, and it's like in this rectangular 
plastic jug, right? And so you fill it up, you wash it out, you fill it up, you freeze it, and it would lay perfectly, it lays perfectly on the bottom of my uh, ice chest. So I can lay like three or four of them down. But then he said, add a little bit of water to, to it. And so when you do that, and then keep it in the shade as much as possible, uh, if you're outside, um, you know, it, that ice will last for a long time. And uh, we did it when we went up to the country, and it, I mean, it was surprising. I mean, we were outside. I mean, it wasn't even inside, but it was in the shade, and that ice, it, it lasted for uh, three days. So, um, you know, that's something that I always uh, recommend and always uh, to do. You just want to put a little bit of, of water on the bottom, and that uh, definitely helps there. Um, you talked about food and stuff like that. Again, uh, you know, I remember when, uh, when we went through Ike, um, my parents had lost their power as well. And, uh, but you know, there was still fuel and you were still able to get fuel because parts of the city were still, uh, it was only like our part that, that was without power. So you could still get fuel. You could still drive the gas stations and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, they would come over and, uh, you know, we would cook our food on the grill and we would just go outside and eat it. And it was hot, uh, and it sucked, but, uh, you know, you could easily do that. Now, uh, I will tell you that if you ever think that you're going to have storms that are coming and it's going to, you know, uh, power outages and you're going to have that, I would turn down the AC, uh, you know, as much as you can stand it just to try to keep, uh, try to cool it off. Because it will get hot really, really quick, and so uh, when we, you know, when we knew that Ike was coming, when we, when there's big storms coming, we try to turn the AC down just in case if we lose power. We don't lose power uh, very often, and if we do, um, it comes back on really, really quickly. But you know, if there's a big storm coming uh, that that you know the news is talking about and people are talking about, I turn down the AC just so that it will cool off the house. And even if we have to put on a little sweater or something like that. Um, if the lights do go out, it will it will pay off a little bit later on because you'll you know the house will stay a little bit cooler and it'll take uh, longer to heat up. So uh, a couple of things there, uh, but yeah, go uh, go you can go check out this article here. Um, the way MD has his um, his website set up, when I have to I blow up the articles just so that I can. Uh, um, just so that I can read them a little bit easier. Uh, there are a couple of links in here, so um, I'm, I'm going through it, trying to going going. I'm, I'm going through it, trying to uh, pinpoint those out. And then at the, uh, of course, at the end, you have uh, other articles that are, are of interest uh, along the same lines. And then, of course, uh, MD has a big community over there in the comments section. All right, so this next article is uh, even a little bit longer than this last one. It comes to us from Survival Sullivan, uh, the top 10 biggest prepper debates. And so uh, I'm going to go and I'm going to start reading this one and then I'm going to interject uh, as I see. I'm not going to wait to the end of the article to interject on this one uh, because it is, like I said, it's a little bit longer. So uh, top 10 biggest prepper debates over at Survival Sullivan. Let's go ahead and start reading. No matter how long you've been prepared, prepping, you'd no doubt run across some prepping concepts and advice that you disagree with. Preppers are a very diverse bunch of people. Whether they call themselves bushcrafters, survivalists, preppers, off-gridders, or homesteaders, all have different goals, motivations, skill levels, and beliefs. With the recent political upheaval and changes in economy and weather in the United States and around the world, more and more people are discovering that being prepared is not such a bad idea. 
While preppers and non-preppers have long argued over the necessity of prepping, there are also many different debates that go on even among preppers. In this article, we're going to highlight some of the long-standing debates among preppers. As you read through our list, think about what side of the prepper fence you come down on each of these issues and let us know your reasoning in the comments. The first one is barter food and water or save for yourself. It's no secret that when SHTF, the economy is going to suffer in some way. In fact, most preppers are in agreement about the fact that U.S. currency or cash will quickly become almost useless after a major SHTF event. The primary theory is that in order to survive and to get your hands-on items you may need to survive, you will need to be in the position to barter with other people who have what you need. But that's where the agreement ends for a lot of preppers. Many disagree over exactly what the best items will be when bartering replaces currency. Food and water are something that every single person is going to need in order to survive, right? And after an SHTF event, many people will be desperate to get food and water so their family can survive. It makes sense then that food and water could be a good thing to have on hand so you can barter with other people to get what you need. Because of this logic, many people stockpile extra food and water with the intent of using it to barter for other needed items. But there are those that disagree and will vehemently insist that you should never use food and water to barter with and that you should save all that food and water for yourself and your family. In fact, these opponents of food and water for bartering purposes believe that if you use food and water to barter, you are actually putting yourself and your family at risk for starvation. These folks believe that you should keep food and water for yourself and instead stockpile other items for bartering such as gold and silver, ammunition, or luxury items such as alcohol, cigarettes, and candy. So, where do you stand when it comes to bartering? Will you barter using food and water or will you stockpile something else that you can trade for items you need? Alright, so uh, I'm going to go back up to the top of this little section right here. Um, Cash... I don't know if cash is going to, if people are going to realize that cash is is out of it that quickly. Um, so we are so, uh, you know, so programmed to, you know, to, to for money and that you know, cash is money and money is cash and and the green stuff and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I don't know if people will automatically. Uh, you know, turn away from from dollars. And again, the important thing is like what what kind of collapse or what kind of SHTS situation are we talking about? Is it the big one like EMP and then like everything's done? Well, then yeah, possibly. Um, are we talking about so, uh, societal collapse? Are we talking about social unrest? You know, those kinds of things. And uh, I don't I don't think so. So, uh, you know, so don't take that as, you know, that's just a given that money is not going to be worth anything right off the bat. Um, It really depends on what we're talking about. And then the other thing about food um, might not be so much that you want to barter with it, but you just want to help other people with it. And so, um, you know, that's that's something to consider. and I've said this before, and so if you've been listening to the podcast, you know you've heard it before. Um, you don't stop being who you are in an SHTF. Yes, people change, uh, personalities are going to be heightened. But as a as a believer in Christ, I, I'm not going to change who I am because uh, you know the poop is at the fan. And so um, when you have a uh, you know a, a young mother. 
uh, and uh, you know with their child coming coming around and they need food or something you know uh, you're like I'm sorry I, I I only barter you know I only have gold to barter you know you have something you can change you know exchange for gold and maybe you can eat gold you know I, I don't know I don't believe that's going to be the the case for me uh, that I don't want to believe that that's going to be the case uh, I'm going to believe that uh, my faith in God is going to uh, to extremely kick in at those times now one thing that he did not say here that I think is really really relevant to other people is maybe another argument that people have for not bartering food in a situation like this is that once you give food out, uh, people are going to know that you have food to give. And so word will travel very, very quickly and, uh, you know, go on. And, and that could be, you know, you could have uh, a lot of people showing up at your door at that time. And then what are you going to do? You'll be so, so overrun, right? Uh, you might panic at that point. So that's probably uh, another reason why you wouldn't want to barter food. Um, you know, we read that article yesterday where... Uh, you know, you might have a small baggie with a cup of rice and a cup of beans that you're able to give to people and say, here, here you go. Um, this, you know, this will last you for a day or two, you know, and uh, go go cook it somewhere. And, uh, you know, I wrote an article and this is uh, 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 creating myth when the SHTF is, uh, you know, like, I guess if you watch The Walking, Walking Dead, I, I didn't watch The Walking, I haven't watched The Walking Dead in a long time. Uh, but when they were going to that one city, everybody was like, hey, come to this one city, and they would see things and and, and all those kinds of things. So they were going, I can't remember the name of it now, but anyway, they were going and then they were eating people and stuff. Uh, uh, you know, so you could create that myth as like, oh, hey, you know, I heard that the next town over has plenty of food. You know, they have, they're giving away food, they have plenty of food. You could, you could use that as well, right? I'll link to that article uh, if I remember to put that one in there I thought it was a, a decent article creating myth when the SHTF uh, happens all right so let's keep going uh, bug in or bug out next on our list of long-standing debates is the age-old debate is it better to bug out or bug in preppers from all walks of life come down on opposite sides of the fence on this issue the debate over whether to bug in or bug out involves many different factors including location climate security population density and a host of other issues some bushcrafters and survivalists are counting on bugging out to the woods to survive on their skills and whatever nature provides. Other preppers who are tied to the city for income purposes are intent on bugging out to a more remote bug out retreat they have prepared ahead of time. Most experts will tell you that for most people, bugging out is more dangerous than bugging in and that it puts your family at risk from other people, but there are still those who will insist that bugging out is the best option for them. Those who come down on the bugging in, bugging in is best side of the fence will point to their immense stockpile of food, water, and other supplies as testament to the fact that they are better off to stay put. Others who intend to bug in have gone to great lengths to secure their property from intruders including everything from guns and ammunitions to booby traps. There are a couple of preppers, I'm sorry, there are groups of preppers who believe that bugging in is the answer in most situations, but they are preparing to bug out if the situation calls for it. I'm not sure this one will ever be put to rest because there are simply so many varying factors involved. But what say you when SHTF, what will you do? So yes, this is going to be one of the big ones. And I know when I uh, post uh, 
an article about bugging out uh, on Prepper website, I know that it's always a popular one. Uh, remember, you might be bugging out uh, and not necessarily just bugging out to the woods. A lot of the times people, uh, you know, they just assume you bug out to the woods. You might be bugging out to like a family, to another family's, uh, you know, to a family's farm or a family or family who lives out in the country somewhere. Um, you know, that might be your bug out. Uh, you don't you're not necessarily bugging out to the woods or bugging out to your retreat. Um, but if you have family, if you, you know, get it get it ahead of time or if you um <clears throat> excuse me if you have a situation where uh like you mentioned you are in a city and you're afraid that uh things are going to uh go downhill very very quickly um you know you want to bug out um beforehand and try to get to try to get uh, somewhere like like I said like a family member or you know some place like that all right moving on talking about talk about prepping or stay quiet Many preppers will agree that just like in Fight Club, you don't talk about prepping. They keep their prepping activities discreet and they don't talk to strangers, neighbors, friends, or even family about what they're stockpiling. Some preppers even prepare a logical explanation of the cashier or neighbor asks why they are buying so many supplies. Their motto is that each person has the same access to information and the ability to prepare as the next and those who don't prepare are on their own. The preppers in the Keep Your Mouth Shut About Prepping camp believe that talking to others about prepping simply opens you and your family up to becoming a target when SHTF. But there are some preppers out there who believe that the more people who are prepared for some kind of SHTF situation when it happens, the better it will be for everyone. It's no secret that one of the most dangerous threats following an SHTF situation will be people in your area who aren't prepared trying to take your stuff. Some preppers believe that by talking to friends and neighbors about prepping, they are helping to reduce the number of people who will be so desperate and helpless following an SHTF event. So, by talking to others about prepping and even convincing them to prep too, it reduces the number of people in the area coming after your supplies following an SHTF event and could potentially create allies to help boost your odds of survival. So yeah, that's um, there's not really a lot to talk about that one, but uh, you know you got to make that decision for yourself if you're going to be talking about it. Uh, there's people that I care about that I uh, you know if if the poop hit the fan, I want them to uh, at least know I, that I tried to get them to to warn them, and so um, you know I, I didn't have a problem talking about prepared. I mean, so. And, and let me justify that. So when I was on the campus, I mean, all the teachers that I, uh, you know, that were there knew that I was into preparedness. They knew I had the website. They, if they had questions, they would always come and ask me or, or I would bring things up, right? Or, you know, they would hear me talking about it with someone else or whatever. Um, so uh, you know that recently I moved into the district office. And so I'm not really talking too much about preparedness there. I'm not really talking about preparedness with people there. Um, I just haven't got to the point. I mean, there is one person who saw uh, my Instagram and they were like, hey, what is this? You know, because I uh, sometimes I uh, put up the the, uh, the graphic for the episodes, right? So she's like, hey, what is this, you know, this prepper thing? What do you, what is that that you're doing? And so kind of explained it. And, you know, the, their response was, well, that makes sense. That sounds like uh, just, you know, living on a farm, you know, uh, you know, trying to be prepared and be smart um, because she was kind of old school. And so, you know, she, she understood it, you know, from that point of view. 
But I'm not just going around everyone right now, talking to everyone and, and, and just letting them know what you know that that I'm into preparedness and I have a website and a podcast and blah blah blah. Um, so eventually it, we'll get to that, I'm sure, as people become more comfortable with me and I become more comfortable with them. So you got to weigh it all, you know. Um, you got to weigh it all. All right, continuing on. Help zombies or shoot them. Following an SHTF event, most preppers will agree that there will be huge numbers of people who have not prepared. These people are those who are so, excuse me, who are so dependent on technology and having services readily available to them that they won't know what to do when the power goes out indefinitely. Believe it or not, there are two camps of preppers for this topic as well. There are those preppers who believe that prepping is a personal responsibility and anyone who doesn't take on that responsibility and prepare for themselves and their family deserve what they get. Many of these preppers also feel that when these unprepared people or zombies come knocking on their door looking for food or some other handout, the best course of action is to turn them away or even shoot them if they refuse to leave. On the other side of this debate are the people who realize that shooting undarmed and desperate people might not be the best way. Preppers in the Help Those in Need camp believe that every person has value and should have an opportunity to prove, to prove themselves useful. The preppers in this camp typically stockpile extra supplies to pass out to the zombies before asking them to move on. Also on this side of the debate, there are also some preppers who believe that there is strength in numbers. This subset in the Help Zombies camp are making plans to invite or accept zombies into their own survival group by giving them responsibilities and chores in exchange for food and a place to sleep. This subset of preppers believes that by making their own group larger, they will be better able to defend against the roving gangs and thieves. Alright, so uh, really not a lot to talk about that, and we've discussed this as well. You know, if you, if you decide to pop someone off, uh, and, and what if the collapse ends in, in two or three years, uh, and then people remember what you did, um, you know, they'll come after you, they could come after you and press charges and it might not be the U S constitution that's in place. Uh, it might be whoever is, uh, you know, the person in charge, uh, you know, their law that's in place. So, uh, something to think about there. All right, continuing on, survive alone or in a group. When it comes to debates among preppers, one of the long-standing debates is whether your chances of survival are better alone or in a survival group or community. On one side are the bushcrafters and the hardcore survivalists who believe that they are better off alone after an SHTF event. These preppers believe that depending on their skills rather than on other people is the best course of action. Many of the preppers in this camp are, formerly, are former military men or are lone wolf types who are already living a pretty isolated lifestyle. These guys may do okay on their own, just, just them against nature, or at least they think they will. But only if their skills are truly up to par and they don't get any serious injuries that render them physically incapable of making a fire and doing the many other chores that are needed to survive in the wild. On the other side of this debate are the preppers who believe that it's beneficial to have a group of people to share the immense workload involved with long-term survival after an SHTF event. These are the prepper families, those who have loved ones and can't imagine leaving them behind. This group of preppers believe that pulling together a group of people who have a diverse range of skills and knowledge puts them at an advantage after an SHTF event. This group understands the concept of no man is an island and they have a group of people that they trust that can plan and train together for, a, for whatever the future may hold. All right. Um, 
I, I think a lot of people, the, the sort of going alone, I think that's pretty much, uh, I haven't seen an article on that in a while. I did see someone uh, write that in, uh, like on a Facebook uh, comment, but I haven't seen an article on that in a long, long time. I think maybe people are realizing that, that uh, that's not a good uh, situation to be in. All right, what disasters are we preparing for? One of the things preppers have in common, of course, is that they're all prepping for some emergency or other events in the future where life won't run as smoothly as it does now. But the agreement on a need to prepare is whether the harm is where the harmony ends and the debates begin. Some preppers are simply preparing for the next emergency, whether it be a natural disaster, a storm, a home invasion, or terrorist event. They are getting ready for a short-term period where they will need to protect themselves from those who intend harm, survive without power, without running water, or without the usual amenities modern life holds. This group of preppers may or may not have an interest in preparing to bug out or leave their home on a short-term basis. They often don't believe that there is some catastrophic event that is coming for the country or the world that will change life as we know it. They are preparing for a short-term local emergency, and they believe after such an event, life will return to normal. On the far side of this debate are the doomsday preppers. This group is preparing for Teotihuacan, or the end of the world as we know it. They believe that there is some cataclysmic event looming in our future which will alter the course of history and change the world forever. This group of preppers is not only stockpiling food and supplies, but they are working toward a way of life that is completely independent of the economy that they fear will collapse when this event occurs. I think those are two extremes. I think most preppers fall in the middle where they are prepping for those short-term events, but they are ready for you know the, the longer-term events as well if needed. Uh, I think that's where most people are. Um, so, yeah. And then when you look at the doomsday prepper thing, um, you know, if, you, if you've been in preparedness for a while or you, or you were in preparedness back when that show was, was going on, um, you know, the big thing there was that the producers made you choose one big thing that you were, you were preparing for. You couldn't say, hey, man, I'm just preparing to keep my family safe. You know, it was always I'm preparing for, you know, polar shift. I'm preparing for you know, a new ice age. I'm preparing for EMP. It was always something like that. So um, I think most people or most people in preparedness are right in the middle. All right. Continuing on knowledge and skills versus gear. Another longstanding debate among preppers is the one is the one knowledge and skills versus gear. Some preppers, especially those new to the whole concept, get caught up in having the newest, greatest, best gadget to accomplish any post-SHTF task. These gear gurus believe that they will be fine after a disaster because they have an EDC kit, a get-home bag, and a bug-out bag filled with all the best gear. They may have large stockpiles of water, food, and other supplies in their bug-out location or home. If they need to handle it following a major disaster event, they are confident they have something in their stockpile of gear that will get the job done. But on the other side of this debate are those who believe that the more knowledge and skill you have under your belt, the less gear you will need to carry with you. These preppers recognize that depending on gear to get you through a crisis is a dangerous thing in the chaos that will follow. They travel light with just the basic gear and intend to survive on what can be found in the environment. These preppers focus on mastering the foundational survival skills and then learning as much as they can in other areas they feel are important. 
Again, I think most people are in the middle. I think when you first start out in preparedness, you're you're gonna be uh, you're gonna go towards the gear stuff, right? But as you are learning, and as you, I mean, if you're really serious about preparedness, and you're learning, and you're researching, and you're you know you care about being uh, prepared, you realize that you need to go more to that skill development uh, and that knowledge, uh, you know, obtaining knowledge, and so uh, and practice, right? And so. I think eventually you get there if you if you stay in preparedness. If you come to it because uh, you know it's Y2K and uh, it's a month out of Y2K, no, you're gonna just it's gonna be all gear related stuff. Uh, but if you're into it for a while, you're gonna realize you know what this gear is eventually it's gonna break down. Uh, this food is eventually gonna be eaten. I need to have knowledge and skills. All right, uh, join a prepper network, yay or nay? This is a this is. Strength in numbers, right? Or is there? The decision to join and participate in a prepper network is one that has been long debated among preppers. On one hand, joining a prepper network gives you access to the varied skills and knowledge of a wide group of people. As part of a prepper network, you have the opportunity to meet preppers at all levels of experience and you can learn from the mistakes of those who have been prepping longer than you have. Being part of a prepper network can give you the opportunity to get together with people in your area and practice the skills you are learning and gain confidence in your ability to survive when the time comes. But on the other, hand, on the other side of the debate are fears and distrust surrounding the decisions to join a prepper network. There are different levels of preppers, prepper networks from those that are community-based to those that are loosely organized online. Some preppers believe that sharing information about your preps, your location, and your plans with SHTF can make you a target. In reality, it is a big risk to put yourself out there to let, to let complete strangers into your planning process and alert them to where they could go to get supplies if they themselves get desperate. For this reason, even if you do join a prepper network, make sure you limit the amount of detailed information you share about your plans and preps. Follow basic OPSEC and don't tell people how to get to your bug out or bug in location, how many guns you own, or where your food stockpile is hidden. So um, you know, again, there's a lot, a lot on that. <clears throat> Sorry, my uh, my voice is getting all croaky and froggy. I don't know what's going on with that. Um, we've talked about that in the past as well, and here just recently about uh, setting up groups, and you can easily put the word out there. And uh, you know, meet in a neutral location and kind of start feeling people out. And, and you can, you know, you can have a group where you come together and uh, a central location where you're talking, maybe even practicing skills. Like, hey, uh, next time we're going to meet at the park, or next time we're going to meet over here. Uh, we're going to practice firecraft, or we're going to practice setting up a shelter, or we're going to practice water purification. But you're always doing it at a neutral location, uh, and you know, never really. Um, getting to the point where you're uh, sharing your your specific information, your detailed information, and so you know that's always possible as well because you're learning skills from each other. Uh, that's kind of the way that meetup group that was here in Houston, uh, you know, worked out. Uh, you know, they would get together, and there's groups here in Houston as well. If uh, if you are, um, you know, th there's there's groups here in Houston. You just got to start looking for them that are available, that are uh, open. Uh, and so, you know, you can you can hook up with them. Just gotta you just gotta look around. Uh, guns over bows for hunting and defense. 
When SHTF, most preppers agree that security and defense will be a priority issue for just about everyone. Even those in remote locations will occasionally have to deal with intruders who might wish to do harm. The majority of preppers plan to deal with defense by stockpiling guns and ammunition. This is definitely something worthy of consideration because there's no denying that having access to firearms gives you an advantage. But since ammunition is finite and you can only stockpile so much prior to an SHTF situation, some think there's another option for defense and hunting. Bows, whether recurve or compound, are an option for many. Those who are experienced know the limitations of this method, but they also recognize the advantages. Firearms are loud and will alert people to your location or at least let them know that you have the ability to hunt food which they could possibly steal. Bows are quiet and there's something to be said for stealth after SHTF situation. One of the most dangerous threats will be other people, so some preppers figure silent is better. There are preppers who believe that the other advantage of bow hunting is that they require less maintenance and in a long-term situation, ammunition can be made by hand. Uh, and, and also one of the other things is that they can break down. So strings can be break down and uh, those kinds of things. So something, uh, something to consider there when you're, when you're thinking about a bow for defense and hunting. MREs, are they worth it? Another of the major debates many preppers have is over food for a long-term survival situation post-SHTF or Tiatwaki event. MREs are meals ready to eat designed by and for military field troops. MREs come pre-packaged so that they don't need refrigeration and can be eaten with very little and sometimes no preparation at all. They can typically be bought online or through companies that have commercialized the ready-to-eat meal packaging. Each one contains about 1,200 calories and MRE shelf life is about three years. Many preppers purchase and stockpile them because they are easy to store, caloric intake is already considered in each package, and they require little preparation. One of the downsides to MREs is, of course, the taste. Military troops have given them many different nicknames, including meals rarely edible and meals rejected by everyone. A number of the MREs are considered inedible and would be especially unappealing to children. Companies have begun making them very similar to the military style and have improved upon the taste somewhat. These are prepared by adding boiling water, but the downside of these are the expense. Many preppers believe that while having a few MREs might be beneficial in a pinch, it much, it's much cheaper and far more nutritious and better for morale to be in a position to stockpile, grow, and cook your own food. What's the best way to filter and purify water? Water after an SHTF event will truly be the lifeblood for any prepper and their family or group. Public utilities may be shut down or operate sporadically. Wells and other water sources could be contaminated depending on the type of disaster. A normal healthy adult can only survive without water for about three days. So it's not surprising that preppers argue over the best way to filter water for drinking. They know how critical fresh drinking water will be following an SHTF event. Some preppers swear by their life straw filter, while others insist the Sawyer Mini water filter is the way to go. For others, the best way to purify water in a survival situation is through boiling or distillation. It's a debate that's been going on for a number of years, and I doubt it will ever be settled. So where do you stand on these top 10 biggest uh, prepper debates? Are you stockpiling MREs? Will you use food and water to barter when the time comes? Will you bug in or bug out when the zombies show up at your door? Will you help them or shoot them? Share your thoughts in the comments below.
So there are six comments here you might want to check out. Going back to the water filter thing, if you are new to preparedness, if you're like brand spanking new and you don't have any water filtration set up at all, the easiest one is um, is the life straw. I mean, that sucker, you uh, you pop the top, you, you put it in water, and you suck it up. You know, the first time I ever saw it was at the Self-Reliant Expo in Arlington, Texas. And uh, a guy was drinking water with a bunch of dirt in it. It was nasty. I couldn't believe it. I never I had never seen anything like that before. So he took the, he took this big old swig through the life straw and then spit the water back out in another uh, in another clear uh, glass and it was clear. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's crazy. And that was that was years and years and years ago. And so uh, you know, it was really really easy. Um, so if you're brand spanking new and you're looking for a solution, that's pretty easy. The mini Sawyers, I think they 10,000 gallons they can filter is what uh, if I remember that correctly. And so you might want to use that. You might want to have some of the purification tablets. You know, um, when it comes to water purification and water filtration, I don't have any debate at all. I'm going to have redundancies. I'm going to have many different types. Of, uh, of ways that I can purify and filter water um, because uh, it's so important to me. So that's one thing to consider uh, there. Uh, there's not too much debate for me on that one, and hopefully there wouldn't be too much debate for you either. You're going to want the different uh, different types as well. You know, yesterday on the webinar when uh, Paul was talking about all the different things that the Sun Oven can do, one of the things is that, uh, well, when you buy the Sun Oven, you get a, a WAPI. Uh, it comes with it, and a, a wapi is this. Uh, it's this little tube, and it has uh, it has uh, wax in it, right? And so uh, you put your water in the sun oven, you cover it up, uh, but you put the wapi in there, and you cover it up, and then as the the sun heats up the sun oven, and it starts to pasteurize the the water the way that you know that it is complete is because or it's pasteurized that water is pasteurized is because the little green wax that's at the top of the wappy melts and it goes down to the bottom of the wappy and so as soon as you see that you can pull that water out because that water has been pasteurized and you wait three minutes and that wax will harden and you can put more water in there to pasteurize it so uh you know that is you know, having multiple ways of doing that is uh, definitely, um, or ways of filtering water and purifying water and pasteurizing water is definitely, uh, you know, advantageous to you. And like I said, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm kind of a, a freak on that one. I, I like a lot of redundancies uh, on that. All right. So like I said, it was, uh, it's gonna be a long podcast anyway with just two articles. Hopefully it was interesting because on that, especially on that last one, we covered a whole bunch of different things. Uh, hopefully it was informative for you. Uh, hey, if it was, drop me a line in the comment section on uh, episode 109. Uh, really would appreciate that. Or you know, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget the Facebook group that you can come and be a part of that, and uh, also the email list. So uh, with that, I'm going to go ahead and end it off for tonight. Uh, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.